every single day, all of us are making hundreds, if not thousands of decisions that use AI, machine learning, and data, knowingly or unknowingly. However, the question is, are all of our experiences, perspectives, needs, and concerns represented in those decision-making tables? Hey, Jess, how's it going? It's going well. How's it going with you, Girish? Good, good, good. Things are good. I'm traveling a little bit. Um, and a lot of conversations that I've been having with students is about chat GPT. Have you heard of that? I have heard of it. So I have, and I have to say, I'm slightly frightened. <laughs> I don't really understand it. Um, the implications for education in general are frightening. So there's been a lot of discussion amongst, you know, people I know, colleagues in the field, but yeah, I don't know much beyond that. Yeah, lots of articles. I think even beyond education, implication on the world of work, uh, it's been just mm -hmm. mind-blowing. I've been spending a lot of time when I, when I get a chance to just get on it. So it's really, really cool. So I'm really excited to explore more and what better way to do that than our guest today on the podcast. Exactly. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion because Tanya is an expert in AI, which is something I know absolutely nothing about. And I know ChatGPT, which we just talked about, is a little bit about that. But AI in general, I mean, mm -hmm. applications beyond anything I can even imagine that absolutely. use AI. And to speak to somebody who's an expert in that field and can explain it, hopefully in layman's terms... I so hope so. For my sure. pea brain wraps around it. <laughs> Our pea brains. No, I met Tanya recently at a retreat I was at. And it's just mind blowing some of the work she's doing and some of the work she's been involved in in the past in, in terms of AI. So let's get to it. Welcome back to the podcast. It's exciting to have our guest for the day. Tanya Mishra, who is the founder and CEO of SureStart. Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Girish, and thank you, Jessica. We're really excited to have you on today, Tanya. Thank you for taking the time. Um, Girish, as we were talking about before we started recording the podcast, Girish and, and yourself, you've known each other for a few months now. He knows all about you and what you do. But I've just met you literally five minutes ago, so it would be fantastic if you could start us off with what do you do, where are you from, how did you get to where you are today? So I guess that's three questions, isn't it? So not so basic. <laughs> Absolutely. I will be happy to tell you the story of uh, what I do now and where it started. Okay, so I'm the founder and CEO of SureStart. As Girish indicated, we are a New York City-based, globally-focused startup, and we provide educational um, training programs that are industry-focused and with a goal to build AI, machine learning, and data science-related skills so that we can have a much broader representation of ideas, perspectives, um, experiences, but also concerns from the next generation of talent as they come to those decision-making tables where decisions about the 
AI-enabled technologies that will be built and used by the world at large. We need diverse minds building diverse technology. And that's really the goal of what SureStart is about. We want to support the development of the new face of AI. Well, I mean, there's so much I want to talk to you about. And the first thing that comes to mind is chat GPT, which is like just taking over the world. But before we get to all of that, tell us a little bit about you from Kolkata, India, all the way to New York City with the stop in Minnesota. Tell us that story. Yes. Um, So I grew up in Kolkata, India, and and lived there until I was a newly minted 20-year-old. And at the ripe old age of 20, I came to the United States, specifically uh, to Winona, Minnesota, uh, to join a liberal arts school. The goal was to, um, you know, potentially study to be a math major. But a fun thing happened. So I came to um, I came to Minnesota, you know, in the sort of the tail end of summer um, when, you know, all Minnesotans still thought it was really hot. And of course, me coming from India, it was a 30 degree drop in temperature. So for me, it was like suddenly really cold. Um, But, you know, temperature aside, uh, school hadn't yet started. My aunt was a, I was, you know, I came and stayed with my aunt and my aunt did what most South Asian uh, relatives do. Uh, She took the first day off and showed me around Minneapolis and we drove everywhere and saw a lot of things. And I was just like amazed at not just how um, shiny and quote unquote fancy things were in the United States, uh, but also how big everything and everyone was compared to me. Um, Just like, you know, in terms of everything was bigger and fancier and, you know, just shinier. Um, But then comes day two and my aunt has to go to work. So she took me with her to work. She happened to be an engineer at GE. So she took me with her and literally parked me at the um, workstation that was right next to her. Maybe her coworker hadn't come or something like that. She showed me how to turn on a computer. And that was my first introduction to a computer. And she showed me how to bring up a web browser. And back then, you know, it was um, Netscape, I remember. And she showed me how to bring this up and, you know, how to type and put in some search keywords. And she said, and if you do this, you're going to get, you know, interesting information. And I was like, how does this work? Right. So I was like, I'm going to test this thing out. So I'm like asking it questions that I know the answer to first, right? Simple questions like, where's the Taj Mahal? Because of course, that's the canonical question anyone from India is like thinking about um, when you have to, you know, test a system. So, um, you know, it gets it right. It knows the Taj Mahal is in Agra. So, you know, I proceed with my next set of questions. But of course, there was no asking it questions. You just have to put in keywords, right? And sometimes you get correct answers and sometimes you just get random stuff. I did this again and again to realize that I can get information that I have no access to prior to encountering a computer. And my mind was blown, right? I remember that day I must have opened up like 50 Netscape windows because I didn't know what happened when, quote unquote, you know, this web browser disappeared. And I didn't call it a web browser. I I think I just called it a thing. The thing. I told my aunt, the thing disappeared. So I opened another one because all she had taught me 
was to push this button and this magic portal opens and you can ask it for information, right? And, uh, but I, I knew that little, I knew how to bring it up. I knew how to put in keywords, but I didn't know anything about minimization. I did not know that you can quit this application. So when at the end of the day, my aunt came to like, you know, say, okay, now it's time to go home. She looked at the desktop and there were like, you know, 50 plus open windows because when it would disappear, I was so enamored with this thing rather than, you know, walking over to her desk and asking her like, where did, where did the thing go or the web browser go? I just opened a new one because I wanted that information. Now looking back with a more, um, you know, hopefully mature eye towards computing and computers, I was just really enamored by its the computer's ability to give me access to information, which in the past had been uh, much more streamlined, but probably more difficult for me to get. How did I get information? I got it from my parents, got it from my teachers, or uh, if they didn't have the answers, then I would make the long trek to the large public library with my father and then get the information from, you know, books at the library. And if they didn't have the books related to the question, like once I wanted to know about the Doppler effect, and my father said, this is something that we need to go to the library for, and they didn't have the book. They didn't have the book about where, where I could learn about the Doppler effect. And I was so disappointed. And, you know, we have to work hard to get that information. And suddenly I could, right? So sorry for this very long story, but I wanted to kind of say like how enamored I was with computers. You know, a week later, I go to school, uh, to the university. I went to St. Mary's University of Minnesota in Winona, Minnesota. And there I learned about email. And that's it, right? I'm in love now. I'm like, my mind is blown. I can literally, as I told my father, I can write you a letter right now and you can get it right now. And now think of this 20-year-old who for the first time has left home for the first time, has gotten on an airplane, now is like thousands of miles away. And phone calls back then were really expensive. And so that means all our phone calls with my parents are strictly tactical. There is no time to say, I miss you. I'm sad. I'm scared. This place is so new. I do not understand what people around me are saying most of the time. I don't have the words, but more importantly, the time to express this. So how do I do it? I do it through writing. Real letters, paper mail takes 14 days to get to them and another 14 days to get it back, which means a conversation could take a whole month. And suddenly I am empowered with the ability to write a letter right now so that they can get it right now. Obviously they couldn't get it right now because they didn't have a computer right? But there existed that technology. So that's what, that was the promise of what computing could do. And that was the beginning of my journey. You know, met an amazing mentor who happened to be the department head of computer science. I was talking her ear off. Clearly, you can tell, I can tell good stories. She said, why don't you take CS101? And I remember that day when she, you know, made the suggestion, but really to me, it was a challenge. Because that day at that school with the, you know, 1,200 or so students that were there, there was nobody less prepared to take CS101 than I was. Because at least every one of my peers had seen a computer more than just a week ago. 
They all probably knew how to type. I did not know how to type. I was still hunting and pecking. And I had just seen a computer. And there was nobody in my immediate environment that had ever seen a computer. I was the first one in my entire extended family to see a computer, to have the even the opportunity to be talking to somebody who was a former engineer, to who had the ability to open doors for me towards learning about computing, right? But it, so it felt very challenging, right? It felt so out of my environment. It felt scary, but I decided that, yeah, I was going to do it. And she said, you're going to have to work really hard because you have to learn how to type while you are also taking a class in to become a um, computer scientist, right? So this was like, I I first needed to build the facility, the language that was needed, which was typing. Picked up the challenge and that was the beginning of a long, crazy, awesome, life-changing journey. Um, I got, so that was in what, 98, 99, some late 90s, um, took my first CS class. A year later, I was doing my first computer science internship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where once again, completely just, you know, just mind expanding that I could use what I thought was like technical things, medical things, they're completely apart from each other. And suddenly I could apply technology to address people's health and well-being. That was another sort of that step function in my journey. Four years later, I was um, getting my PhD in computer science. Just about 10 years from the day probably that I encountered a computer for the first time, um, you know, I was getting my doctorate as a PhD in computer science. And now another 10 years and change later, I have the honor and privilege after having been in the field as an industrial machine learning researcher, um, that's really what my PhD thesis was about, um, to now have the opportunity to create pathways for the next generation of um, diverse, engaged, awesome talent to be changing the world of technology and AI. So um, that's the journey. That's how the you know, kid growing up in Kolkata, India, ended up, you know, through many interesting um, pivots and uh, steps and repeatedly saying, how do I, um, you know, end up as the founder and CEO of a New York City-based organization focused on talent development. That's a fantastic journey. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love your story of seeing a computer for the first time, I felt it too. I felt what you were, what you were saying. Um, how did you, you got your PhD and you found a short start in between PhD and founding short start. Where, where were you in there? Did you just go straight into deciding you wanted to, to do this? Or was there another little journey along the way that led you to decide that you wanted to, to found this organization? 
No, there were 12 intervening years. <laughs> so, uh, um, so after I got my PhD, I, um, uh, you know, moved to New York City, um, got a job at AT&T Bell Labs as a individual contributor. I spent six years working at AT&T Labs, um, focusing on using machine learning in order to build technologies, products, and systems that addressed accessibility needs and uh, that were often child-directed applications. Um, you know, this was the time, so this was between 2008 and 20, about 2015 uh, that I was there. And uh, accessibility was something, ex access to everyone, irrespective of how you access this information. Um, you know, no one left out of the ability to access information was something that the US government was legislating and all large you know, data and tech providers needed to be building systems and technologies to do that. And that was really my mandate. Um, and um, I also built a lot of child-directed applications during that time um, with a focus on education because technology is not just for entertainment. Uh, technology is an extremely powerful tool for education. And sometimes those the best technologies are the ones that entertain and educate at the same time. I want to talk about Sure Start and, and the amazing that work, the work that you're doing. But before we get there, can you please chat about ChatGPT? <laughs> I mean, it, as you know, it's been like all over the place. I spent the last two weeks traveling around in India, speaking with all these students at all these high schools. And a lot of the times, ChatGPT and AI kept coming up in conversations. So for us, it's something new and exciting and, and thrilling for you, probably old hat. So tell us a little bit about where are we as a general population in terms of AI and the use of it? And where are you as an expert in AI looking at it? Yeah, so ChatGPT, I mean, it, it's... it's uh really fantastic and amazing tool. Um, you know, this is based on, you know, once again, using, um, it's a portal, frankly, um, that allows us to interact in a very conversational way um, with large databases of information in order to get um, answers to questions we have um, that are much more um, focused and that are much more like talking to another human being as opposed to, you know, sort of putting in search terms and then, you know, it's a little bit of a mixed bag that you get like, and that was, I knew you were going to talk about chat GPT, which is why I sort of did the setup when I talked about um, the old web browsers of the late 1990s, uh, which were very much keyword based and they were um, very much it, on the back end, it was a matching game, right? So you were looking at, you know, if there was a search term somebody put in um, and, you know, the system was really matching it against documents and saying, hey, which document appears to have the greatest representation of this particular search terminology, and then it was producing it. And also depends on sort of when in the evolution of search. Search has had a long evolution. I mean, it's always continued to get smarter, but in the late 1990s, it was actually not a good idea to put your search terms as questions, as you might ask another human being, because all the 
syntax, right? All the, in some ways, the filler words, the articles could trip up the system because like you might get an, a document presented to you or a um, search outcome presented to you that has nothing to do with the thing that you were interested in, but it happened to have the right mix of all the filler words, but not like the key concept. It may have had that key concept once or twice represented. So back then in the late 1990s, early 2000s, the smart thing to do was actually don't ask the system questions like you would ask a human being. It's been like this weird parallel skill, knowing how to ask the right search terms or search phrases so that you get the right answers. Um, but what we've always wanted to do was just be able to talk to the system. I mean, we've ML researchers, we're constantly trying to think of how do we make human machine interactions less frustrating, uh, more edifying, low cognitive, requiring low cognitive bandwidth. It should feel like I'm just talking to my new best friend who happens to be a system, right? That's the goal. Now we can discuss the ethics of that and there are lots of good questions around it. But that said, that's been one of the goals is to make these interactions really low cognitive bandwidth interactions, right? And that's one of the things that ChatGPT is enabling because now you are able to not just ask it questions, but there's also some semantic understanding or spoken language understanding built into the system. Again, not exactly like humans, closer to it than we have been before, so that it is now able to do two things. One is it has a better sense, better estimate, really, at the back end, it's all statistics, right? It's a better estimate of what is the main goal of your question, right? Um, because every question has a particular purpose and goal. So it has a better understanding of that. And on top of that, it's also able to synthesize the answers. And this is powerful, right? It's not just giving you search, you know, like documents or search results. It's not like, hey, here is like a bunch of results. Look through it. It's trying to synthesize reasonable answers on the fly, like a human being would. So, you know, just like, you know, Girish or Jessica, if I asked you about international education, like how do I start an international education organization or business? You're not just going to give me like, hey, here are resources for you to look at. You will first give me a summary of how to go about setting up something like this. And then you'll follow it up with, oh, and by the way, here are some really helpful resources. That's what the outcome of ChatGPT is. And how does it do it? It is a machine learning driven you know, system, which takes a look at on the back end, it is looking at millions and millions of data points around how, what are the types of questions people tend to ask? What are the types of really high quality answers? What are all the related resources? And then separately, it has also learned how to synthesize, again, based on examples, high quality, human readable, written text, right? And the, there is on the back end, basically, there's a number of technologies that are cascaded together in order to have the seamless experience uh, for the user. Now, 
I'm learning about it as similarly to how all of you are. Um, so I think there is, so I don't know all of the details around it, but my understanding is that they have also built in um, some ethical scaffolding on the back end so that unlike the some of similar models that were tried you know in five to eight years ago, it does not represent the worst human behaviors of the when people are online, right? When we're all hidden behind our computers, we sometimes tend to behave badly. And past machine learning based systems that have tried to replicate human interactions have honestly picked up our worst behaviors, the patterns of worst behaviors, and represented that. So sometimes there have been examples of technologies that have been um, racist, misogynist, terrible, rude, but where the organizations that put that out have had to shut it down. So we have all learned. Again, we're learning as we are going. So my understanding is that ChatGPT does have more of a um, ethical scaffolding on the back end, which prevents it from replicating those mistakes or flaws. But there are fears that there are ways to get around it. I think this is a really powerful system. I think we as users of this system um, need to be thinking about how are we using it? You know, educators, I've been getting a lot of calls from educators saying, what does it mean for us? Like, can we not ask the same kind of questions? And we do training. So we had to ask ourselves, do the questions we ask our students, how easily is it possible for them to just get the answer from chat GPT? And my hypothesis after doing some examination is that the types of questions for which chat GPT would be able to give you the pat answer that one you know, a student could replicate probably shouldn't have been the questions that anyone should have been asking all along. Questions that bring that bring in sort of technical skills in my case, um, you know, other sorts of um, domain skills in other areas, along with a individual's creativity, ethical considerations, worldview. Now, those are the questions that ChatGPT will not be able to replicate because, um, you know, these are very individualized to the student. So I think questions that situate um, the question in the student's lived experience are probably great questions to ask. And they can be supported by ChatGPT, but that is not going to be enough. It's really fascinating. I'm just, I'm sucked into everything that you're saying. And I hadn't thought about it, but that makes a whole lot of sense, bringing the student's worldview into the questions. Because this whole conversation being thrown around about, you know, how students are going to be able to use it to answer all of their, you know, questions on their final exams and this and that and the essays they have to write. But actually, it depends on the questions that are being asked to such a great degree. And I hadn't seen that anywhere or even thought about that. Girish, what do you think? I mean, we could talk about this all day. <laughs> and I think Tanya can offer so much perspective on this. Uh, but that's a very interesting way to present it. And I think in all the discussions and the conversations that are happening around the use of ChatGPT, or rather, quote unquote, the misuse of ChatGPT by mm -hmm. students, I think this really sets the tone in terms of how educators should be looking at it 
And basically the question, are we assessing the right things from the students? Yeah, so, exactly. Anyway, so let's park that to the side for another longer discussion and go to Sure Start. Tell us a little bit about Sure Start. And I know you addressed it a little bit in terms of what you're trying to do, but give us a little bit of a history of it. I would be interested in particular, Tanya, sorry to interrupt, to to know what gave you the, what was the impetus, you know, what gave you the idea you're working, you were at your role before, you have this good job, you were, and then suddenly you decide to do this new thing. Where does that come from? Two things. One is, um, so first I'll start with what we are trying to do. Unfortunately, AI, machine learning, and data-related decision-making, there's so much buzz around it. Every single day, all of us are making hundreds, if not thousands of decisions that use AI, machine learning, and data, knowingly or unknowingly. However, the question is, are all of our experiences, perspectives, needs, and concerns represented in those decision-making tables, those groups of five, seven, 10, 15 at most, that decide what these really powerful models and systems are going to do? And the answer is no. AI and ML continues to be an exclusive club. There is not enough representation of the rich diversity of this world that we live in. And that's the reason that some of these, um, you know, flawed systems cause havoc in our world. Systems that uh, penalize, marginalize, leave out many, many people on a regular basis. I mean, it's almost like you can't go a month without opening a newspaper and reading about this system. You know, sometimes it's related to face recognition. Sometimes it's related to voice synthesis. Sometimes it's related to, you know, uh, something that, uh, you know, produces numbers and words, but something that ha is having a inordinate and negative impact on large groups of people. There are many ways. There is no single silver bullet, frankly, to change that. But one aspect of it that doesn't matter which, which approach you take that is a necessary condition is that we need a broader representation among the workforce that builds these powerful technologies. Um, and there is like, and this is not just a social and moral imperative, which it absolutely is but it makes great business sense. So I told you about the first six years, what I did after my PhD, I worked as an individual contributor. The next six years, I actually worked at a startup that was a spinoff from MIT Media Lab called Affectiva. Um, it was a really well-known, well-funded um, startup that doing amazing things. And I had the opportunity to lead exploratory research um, while working at Affectiva. But a part of my mandate was also building up my team bringing in new people, hiring new people. And it would take anywhere between six months and once even up to a year to find a single person. Because the pool of people who had the technical skills to be hired into a role as a machine learning researcher, as a data scientist, what have you, um, there was just too few people and every single person in that space was all being courted by large and small companies, right? Um, so hiring was a complete nightmare. And then because of that, everything took longer. 
you know, project deadlines had to be extended because there were only so many people to do the work, which means that getting, you know, technologies, products to market and serving our clients took that much longer. Taken together, productivity was paused in a way that cost the entire ecosystem millions of dollars, right? And this was a problem I faced I mean, for the entire six years that I was at Affectiva, just hiring great talent took time. And this was not just my experience. This was the experience of every hiring manager. And yet, on the other hand, anytime I gave talks, anytime I was you know, traveling, just having a conversation with someone, and I told them, what did I do? I built um, systems, machines, computers um, that could have some understanding of human affect and cognitive states. They're like, so you mean, so your job is to understand how humans express emotions, and then you are trying to build systems that can do some approximation of that. There are many different reactions to it, all the way from, oh my gosh, that's creepy. So now people are afraid to talk to me because now they think I'm analyzing their emotions all the way to, oh my gosh, that's such an exciting job. How do I get that job? And honestly, for most of the young people, the the question was, that's an exciting job. How do I get your job? So what I saw was there was enormous interest in being in the AI ML space. And my, my way of working in that space was very one particular approach. There's so many different applications. And there was great interest in the hiring manager community to hire as fast as we could, but something was broken in between. The pipeline between talent and opportunity was broken. The breakage was that industry was moving at a very, very fast pace. So industry-focused technical skills were just like, you know, growing by weeks and days, like the speed at which you needed to be upskilled. Whereas universities or other educational organizations, they are large organizations that have a particular way of doing things. It was just like there was um, a mismatch in pace between how technical education was being delivered at the university level and the needs of industry. And I experienced that. But I also experienced what happens when you find the mentorship, the opportunity, and the pathway to make your way into this frontier tech field, which is also the new economy. It changes lives. It has being AI ML researcher, having the opportunity to have a career in this field has changed my life, has changed the life of my family, has changed the life of my broader community. Because now suddenly so many of my cousins, my you know, friends of cousins, you know, everybody's like, okay, we know somebody who is in this space. We can get information on how to find your way into the space, how to be ready for this space. It has literally changed the social and financial capital, not just again for me, but for my broader community. And that can be true for so many young people. So that was the reason I said, okay, let's try to fix the gap. I cannot, again, provide the entire solution, but I sure am going to try. So that's what started Short Start. And we have, Short Start is now two years old. 
we run AI machine learning cohorts uh, about once a quarter, uh, where we train college students and high school students in developing those industry-focused AI and machine learning skills so that they can take their first step into these careers, either through an internship, a co-op, in case of some of our students, even first jobs. And um, we've now been doing it for a little over two years. We have trained 500 plus students um, that have gone through our cohorts, majority of whom um, have found that first step forward into industry within six months of being in our programs. And But this is just the beginning. There are thousands of students that are part of our broader community. And our next step forward is figuring out how do we scale this so that we can bring this kind of training to thousands of students. I mean, brilliant work. <laughs> I'm speechless, actually. I don't even know what to say. No, I know. Uh, you are definitely a destiny bender, huh? Changing <laughs> lives, bending destinies, for sure. You are too kind. Thank you. Where, where do you go from here, Tanya? Where do we go from here? Where we are, I mean, we're just at the beginning. My gosh, there is so much to do, right? Um, so our next goal really is to, um, I see the first two years, you know, I'm a, I'm trained as a scientist. So, um, you know, wearing that uh, sort of scientific approach hat, I see our first two years simply as a pilot. What we have been able to prove out is that the training we are providing to students works. Our student outcomes speak for themselves. Um, you know, our high schoolers have found uh, the next step forward at, at amazing universities, and our college students have found jobs in, you know, amazing, extremely competitive tech accelerator companies, you know, brilliant startups, even at NASA. So the results speak for themselves that what we are offering produces results. And that's that's a good pilot. What we are now figuring out is how do we offer this in a scalable way so that, again, it's not hundreds of students, but it's thousands of students that are going through our programs. Um, our goal is that in the next three to five years, um, you know, we have somewhere between three and a half to 5,000 students that have gone through our intensives and um, 40,000 plus students on our broader platform. Exciting. And I hope it's not just thousands, but millions of students that can go through your programs. Let's switch to a lighter note. We always try to ask our guests some uh, quick fire questions. And I'll go first. When you're not busy changing the world, what do you do for fun? Where do you find inspiration from? I go on long walks. I live by um, the Hudson River in New York City. And one of my favorite things and like the most sort of brain clearing things is to take a walk by the river. Fantastic. And I'll go international because we we have people who are based all over the world who listen to our podcast. I'm sure you travel. Where's your favorite place to go when you travel? Um, holiday destination that you think this is an amazing place? I love to travel. Oh my gosh, this is such a hard question. I was worried you were going to ask me this question. However, um, the two places that 
I have that like anytime I think about my happy place, both of these places come to mind. And I was in both of these places with my parents. So maybe that had something to contribute to it. So one is uh, Tobago in Trinidad and Tobago. And the other one is the Maldives. Um, oh, gosh. Wow. Both of them with beautiful, beautiful, clear blue waters and just miles and miles of white sugar sand. Um, those are both my happy places. I strongly recommend both of these places, seeing nature at its best. I have one more question for you. Sure. What is a book that you're reading right now? Or if somebody were to want to read a book um, that could maybe explain what AIs do and how the world is about to be changed, um, either or it can be two different okay. books. Yeah. Okay. So, I saw yeah. you reach for a book <laughs> there. <laughs> I sure did. Okay. I would say, because I spent so much of my time thinking about technology, writing about technology, building curricula, you know, all of that, that for fun or just like, you know, relaxing my mind, I actually read things that have nothing to do with technology. Mm -hmm. So this is like one of my favorite books that I'm reading right now. It is by Ursula Burns. And who's a former CEO of Xerox? Um, I had the amazing privilege of hearing her speak um, this year. And the book that she wrote that I'm really enjoying and reading is Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. Mm -hmm. It is amazing. And once again, it is this wonderful journey um, of somebody who has made the most of every opportunity that was presented to them, but in the process, created great opportunity for everyone around them. Um, so I highly, highly recommend it. Ursula Burns um, and her book is Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. Wonderful. Well, Tanya, I know we're coming up on an hour. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. And I know we could probably chat for hours about what's going on in the world of AI and ML, but uh, hats off to you for what you've accomplished so far. Thank you, Girish. And thank you, Jessica. You've been listening to Destiny Vendors. Next week, we're excited to welcome to the podcast, Andrew J. Gordon the CEO and founder of Includify and the founder of Diversity Abroad.